welcome to the Family Matters Podcast, where we answer the tough questions about divorce and separation, empowering you to make better decisions for yourself and your family. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to episode five of the Family Matters Show podcast, in which we will tackle the really tough question of how to reach a reasonable and fair agreement about the kids. I'm your host, Benjamin Bryant, an accredited family law specialist with Bryant McKinnon Lawyers, and I'm joined today by my partner in crime, Heather McKinnon. Hi, Ben. It's great to be back. It's really important that we focus on what happens to children, and I'm really excited that this show is going to talk about the impacts of the financial aspects of the breakdown of relationships for kids. For those who may not already be aware, Heather is an accredited family law specialist and an independent children's lawyer, which means she is qualified to represent children in court proceedings. So Heather is particularly attuned to the welfare and interests of children during separation and divorce. Today, we are going to zero in on two big issues that need to be sorted when it comes to the kids, financial support and the living arrangements after separation. For the purposes of this podcast, we are going to assume that all you listeners out there are interested in finding fair solutions that support your kids. So, if you're just itching for a fight and willing to sacrifice the children to get your way, this probably is not the podcast for you. Well said, Ben. Balance, fairness and a focus on the kids is critical to getting post-separation parenting right. So, Heather, let's start with the financial support for children. If I'm a parent who wants to do the right thing for my children, what do I need to consider when working out a fair financial arrangement after separation? What we know is that the worst thing for kids is conflict when their parents separate and the second worst thing is poverty. So if you make financial decisions based on removing the kids from any conflict and making sure that their basic financial needs are met, you're probably going to make the right decisions. So you need to look at your capacity to contribute to kids and also what the kids' needs are. Don't make financial decisions based on emotion. Make them on the basis of a prudent planning process so that your kids can have the things they need to thrive. So what I find, Heather, when people come and discuss financial arrangements for children is that I need to remind them that the expenses for children are still there um, as, as the family unit as they are now when they're separated. So the costs of soccer and the school fees and things like that, they're still there. And all that's changed is the income stream, where the income comes from. Yeah, the biggest stress is obviously on people when they separate because they've got to set up the two households. But it is really important for parents to remember that in that period of high stress, all the bills to keep the kids reaching their potential continue unchanged. So that's from basic stuff like their food, their clothing, their sports stuff, um, all their extracurricular activities. That remains constant. So it's important to focus on how you're going to look at the combined family income, even though you've got two households, to make sure the kids can still reach their potential. So would you suggest to parents to prepare a budget? Yeah, I usually do that. I say, look, sit down together just before separation if you if you're actually mutually talking about how you're going to do it look at all the income sources that you're going to have so you'll have 
dad's income from work, mum's income from work. You'll have the change in family tax benefit that will occur when you've got two households. So there may be an increase there in Centrelink. Have to get an understanding of whether child support will go from one house to the other house. Once you've got all the income sorted, put it into a pool and then look at what the fixed expenses are going to be for both households. So the person who remains in the house will have to look at what they contribute to the mortgage. The person who leaves the house will have rental payments. And then from then you just work through who's going to have what for food, what school expenses do we have, what kids' extracurricular activities do we have, and work out how you're going to make that combined income cover off the needs for both households. I think it's a great practical tip, Heather, to help people move forward is to look at it um, in a logical arm's length way because I find that when parties can see that monies are going towards their children, they're on the same level, they're on the same playing field, but it's when they think that they're funding the other party's lifestyle or perhaps the new partner's lifestyle or something like that, that's when the wheels fall off. Exactly, and that's why it's important to remember that getting your kids through to adulthood is a team effort, and that team effort has to continue whether you're living together or separate. So this management skill of looking at what the kids' expenses are is something that I encourage all separated households to do probably twice a year. So you update, you know, John Johnny's changed from taekwondo to soccer this term, and our daughter's gone from doing you know jazz ballet at one of the dance studios to wanting to do aerobics at one of the gyms you've got to have that constant communication about the changing expenses that the kids are incurring and the other really important thing to remember is they get more expensive as the older they get so the proportion of the income that parents are spending gets bigger on the kids as they move towards year 12. And that's hard for people who separate when they have toddlers because they often underestimate what the lifetime commitment to parenting costs. Um, And you really need to get your head around that very early on. When working out financial plans, can you or should you take into account what is expected to happen into the future? For example, one partner is likely to receive a large inheritance or one partner currently has a low income but is on a career path that is likely to mean that they will have a big salary in the future. Those things are really important to talk about if you can. Um, Obviously, one of the things that often happens in families where there are grandparents with capital is that there's an agreement that the best contribution the grandparents can make is to things like school fees. So you need to have that frank discussion with each other about whether you're going to speak to the grandparents about the fact that it is a mutual decision that any help that can come from the grandparents should go to the grandkids rather than the adults. And that often eases the angst amongst everybody about how uh, management of finances intergenerationally is going to occur once separation happens. It's also important, as you've pointed out, to note that 
people who are parenting will often have different cycles in their career. So it may be that the dad took time off to be a stay-at-home dad when the kids were little on the basis that um, the mum's income at that time was higher. And it might be as the parents move forward that there's a reverse in that, in that dad's income may go up and mums may stay static. So it's keeping live to the fact that it is a two-decade at least commitment. And in that 20 years, you've got to try and keep the financial communication healthy so that you don't revert to conflict and cruel the potential your kids have to really make the best stab in life that they can get by having adequate resources provided by their parents. And so Heather, how can parents best prepare for unexpected changes um, for something like when someone loses their job or perhaps one of them remarry? So these are the sorts of questions that financial planning is all about. Parents need to keep looking at things like income protection insurance and life insurance while they have dependent children, even though they've separated. So families where there is a good level of communication post-separation will keep cross-insuring each other's income and life insurance, or when they're doing that joint expenses exercise, they'll acknowledge that even though one person may be getting the benefit of income protection insurance, it's specifically because it's their income that's keeping the kids in private school or keeping the kids able to do their extracurricular activities and get things like tutorials for maths and English or whatever the kids need. So, you know, but, you know, obviously keeping that level of communication takes maturity but I've seen it work really well with people who focus on the kids, not on themselves. Mm. And what happens when the other party doesn't want to play fair? How do you work out support payments if you can't agree? So we have a really well-developed government agency called the Child Support Agency who has a uh, legislative framework to work within. So the government's got a formula in the Child Support Assessment Act which says how much money should go from one household to the other if there's no other agreement. So that gives parents a really good model on what money should be changing hands. If all else fails, the agency collect. If the level of conflict's so high that one parent's welching on the deal, then the government steps in and collects the money from the, uh, the recalcitrant parents' pay. Mm. And look, parties do require a lot of information in respect to child support arrangements because I know even with us, you know, when parties come and see us, there's not much lawyers do these days in respect to child support. Um, family lawyers are really good at talking about the Family Law Act and, of course, the parenting arrangements for children and the property settlement between the parents or even spousal maintenance. But when it comes to child support, that's done under the Child Support Assessment Act 1989. And like you said, it's with the agency or the Department of Human Services and they, they make an assessment. So I would really encourage parties or parents that want more information to go to the child support website also um, there's a great guide on there at the department of social services website about child support there's a lot of information which really help parties navigate a complex child support system and that complex formula 
Also, parties can enter into agreements, and again, there's more information about this on the child support webpage. But essentially, there's two types of agreements. Um, one is a limited child support agreement. That is, parties can make an arrangement between themselves that is has to be at least equal to the assessment or what the formula would say and that would that would stay in place for a period of three years or unless there's circumstances uh, whereby there's been an amendment in the circumstances or the formula of around 15 percent or more the other type is a binding child support agreement it gives more finality um, or more security to parents because it's valid essentially until a child is 18 or perhaps when they finish school. Um, but there are some um, requirements. For example, you need independent legal advice and it has to be at least the value of the assessment, at least the amount of the assessment. So I think it's a really great starting point for parents to figure out when they're figuring out the child support agreement to look at the website and to look into those agreements. But what happens when parents can't agree? So we've got a number of scenarios that occur where child support becomes an issue. They're really focused in two areas. One where separation occurs where there are children who are under school age and the parent wants to try and keep the children in the house. And the other one are very wealthy families who earn over, um, say, 250000 a year combined income. Those two scenarios are the ones that family lawyers become involved in. So if we look at the first one, if a family separates when children are little and one parent's being at home, they have a real problem borrowing money to refinance a mortgage because their earning capacity is shot until they're able to go back into employment. But couples who are really child-focused can enter into an agreement under the child support legislation to transfer what would have been the um, working spouse, usually the dad's interest in the home, to the mother in lieu of child support. So it's called capitalised child yeah. support. It's something that we don't see a lot of, but it's a very valuable thing to remember because it may be the difference between the children being able to remain in their known environment in those very early preschool years or the mother having to sell up and go on the rental roundabout. So I would suggest to listeners that if they're in that predicament, it is well worth talking to your financial advisors and your family lawyers about whether the family may benefit from that capitalised child support arrangement. In wealthy families that are earning big bucks, the kids um, are entitled to have a lifestyle that comes from having high net worth parents. And so the child support agreement is tailored to the very specific needs of the children. It's not a formula. So it can in include things that would be seen as luxuries by the normal Australian family. So overseas holidays, the cost of GPS school fees, um, the cost of um, you know, very expensive uh, extracurricular activities that involve equipment like buying pianos and violins and things like that. We don't see a lot of it in general practice, but there are families where tailoring child support agreements to meet the needs of the children in wealthy families are something that's open to negotiation. 
And a question I get asked about child support all the time, Heather, so I'm going to ask you now for the benefit of our listeners, school fees. Is school fees included in a child support assessment or are they something separate? So the child support agency assessment doesn't take into account school fees for middle-class families. So if if the parent's intention was always that the children would go to the local Anglican or Catholic school and, in fact, were enrolled at the school, then the child support agency is able to depart from the administrative assessment to require parents to contribute the cost of those school fees. But, again, it's all about the actual capacity of the parents But the rule of thumb is if you could afford to send your children to schools other than public schools during the marriage, you're expected to continue to send them to those schools after. And that comes from the really working knowledge that we need to disrupt children's arrangements as little as possible and reefing them away from their known peer group and their known school community at the same time as their parents separate is not good for kids. So, you know, if you've got that commitment that your kids will go to a certain private school while you're together, you should budget to have that continue after separation. And we might leave the financial arrangements for children after separation at this point and move on to the parenting arrangements for children after separation. We used to use the term child custody, but these days we talk about parenting arrangements to describe the many and varied ways that children end up dividing their time after separation. Heather, you've been helping people to make parenting arrangements for a very long time, plus you've represented children in court in these manners. Do you have a sense of what sort of living arrangements work best for children after separation? That's a really complex question. It's all about the developmental needs of each child at any given time. So there are broadly four developmental stages of kids that are distinctly different in terms of the needs of the kids. The first is um, babies under 36 months of age. These are the kids who are forming their primary attachments and what we do know is that These children need absolute routine and certainty and so it's usual that in cases where parents separate with children under 36 months that the court will look to primarily have them sleeping in the one bed every night and it's important that parents who aren't able to stay together through that 36-month period get some in my view, input from child psychologists. I've seen over the years, Ben, many children develop serious problems because babies were put into situations that were not developmentally appropriate. So, you know, these horror stories of six-week-old babies doing seven days on, seven days off, those things are catastrophic in many cases for children and parents in that category need to be very careful in how they make decisions. So we then move on to the next stage, which is that stage from when children start school at about six, five or six years of age through to early adolescence around year seven and eight. These are the main kids that the court deals with on a daily basis. 
And they need careful, thoughtful decisions made about how their time shared. Certainly, the longitudinal research says if parents are not in conflict, then a shared arrangement is ideal for this age group. So in every primary school in Australia, you'll see the changeover on Friday afternoon where kids go from mum to dads for the next week. Or you see an extended weekend, every second weekend, the kids going for a block of five nights, say, with the other parent. Those are the families where they've got good post-separation communication and the kids have adapted to the shared routine. But underlying that are all the other sorts of families that we deal with. Cases where children may have some disabilities, they might be on the spectrum, so they need routine and they don't like change. Those children may not cope with shared routines. Or we might have situations where the parents are geographically a long way apart. And so in those cases, we try and look at children spending more of their school holidays with the parent that's working away. There are myriad reasons why shared care doesn't work for some families and each child needs to be examined to look at what's best for that child. We then turn to that next stage of development, which is early adolescence, where the children are flexing their muscles and they want to say in what's going on. So kids in year seven, year eight, year nine, they still need parental supervision in terms of what they should be doing during the day, what they should be doing at night, but they're certainly old enough to give some input into what they want to do. So they might say, look, mum, I want to spend school nights with you or my other free time at dad's place or some other um, arrangement. Then we get to the children whose parents separate from about year nine to year 12 A hundred years ago, those kids were getting married and working. They are independent thinkers. They have a very complex life with their peer group and their parents. And it is absolutely critical that parents do not impose authoritative, dogmatic regimes on those children. They're the children that are most prone to psychological distress if their parents separate. They need to be treated with kid gloves and they need to be given autonomy. The worst thing you can do with a child in year nine is lay down a law and say, you will do this. It could have catastrophic impact. They must be brought into the conversation and they must have a voice in how the family is going to operate if the parents separate. So it gives a broad range of the different developmental stages, but obviously my preference always is to encourage parents to get input from child psychologists when making decisions about children, because what a parent may think is appropriate may in fact not be what's best for that child. I think that was a great overview, Heather. For parents with children under four, I would really send them to Children Beyond Dispute. It's a great website which talks about the impacts of conflict, but also for age-appropriate parenting arrangements for little ones like that. And I really like when you were talking about with the adolescents as well, you know, and having, you know, arrangements that really work with them and communicating with them what they want, because I know 
you know, it's natural for teenagers especially to be, to be aligned with one parent or to not be at home in the family unit all weekend, you know, because we have situations where, you know, parents wanting a whole weekend or a, a long weekend, like you said, and the, the, the resident parents like, man, I wish I could have a home <laughs> or him home for the whole weekend. Um, so I think parents really need to be conscious of what's going to work for their family. In terms of the middle range, Heather, uh, no, there's nothing in the Family Law Act about alternate weekends and half school holidays. So where has that come from? It's come from um, the traditions established since the mid-70s when family separations became more normalised in Australia. And it's, it's a practical sort of arrangement whereby parents have come to this idea that you stick them in one house during the school week and then you can flip the weekends and share the holidays. It's worked for generations of families in Australia, and it's something that I think will always stay there. But remember, it's not necessarily um, what's right for your child, and that's the trouble. Um, One size fits all, it'd be great, we wouldn't need a family court. But there are reasons why, for many children, there has to be very specific details gone into to look at how they are going to organise their time. And you and I both know that there are almost always complications when it comes to sorting out living arrangements after separation. So I'm going to mention some of the bigger complications, Heather, and I'd love it if you could give me your thoughts on how to find fair solutions when faced with these types of complications. Blended families with half, full and step-siblings. Yeah, these are really complex families and warning to all the parents listening, the social scientists trained Ben and I that the highest risk of the breakdown of a second relationship is step-parenting issues. So it's very common for there to be big conflicts. Some parents work on the basis of having all the kids together on one weekend and a child-free household on the other weekend. But that assumes that the respective exes are happy with that timetabling. Where we get into real difficult situations is where you have people trying to stick to strict routines and not realising that you need great flexibility when you're managing, for example, four households quite easily can occur in these situations. So it's stay patient, stay calm, look at the needs of the kids and the ages of the children. There's a window of about six years where children form sibling relationships with step-siblings. Two-year-olds do not form step-siblings relationships with 16-year-olds. And so blended families often are not really blended unless the children are within the same developmental age group. And trying to impose relationships on children that have big age gaps is just going to lead to frustration. So again, you can get lots of help from family relationship centres and from private psychologists and mental health social workers to look at what might be a permutation of the complexities of families that will work with the kids. Make it for the kids, not for the convenience of adults. 
And to reassure the listeners out there who are with blended families, I just want to note that the Family Law Act, Section 60CC, sets out the criteria for what a court must take into consideration when determining what's in the best interest of a child. So we hear a lot about what's in a child's best interest or what's best for children, but that is just not an overarching or holistic view. Um, that is essentially set out by the, the, the Family Law Act, a particular criteria. And the nature of the relationships between children and their significant others, such as uh, might be step-parents, step-siblings, or might be grandparents, that is is taken into account absolutely in that criteria as well as the effect of any order that the court is going to make any any change in circumstances the court is absolutely um, honing in on that so it's, it's a live issue that the court's aware of what about relocation for work or fly-in fly-out working arrangements Relocation cases are some of the hardest that we have to deal with. So Australia has one of the most mobile workforces in Australia. And if you're trying to keep food on the table, it may be that you have to do a relocation. This causes huge angst for separated families. So, for example, you might have a very specialised medical professional who has to move for the needs of the workforce and that they, if they don't take the transfer, they won't have a job. The court's then faced with, does that mean that the children go with the parent who's moving or stay with the parent who doesn't move? These cases require very detailed assessment of how the child's going to be impacted by either moving or staying. And we really do rely, if the parents can't sort it out, on expert input from family consultants. So many, many families work very well when a parent has to shift and you see very creative arrangements. For example, the person who's had to move, having most of the school holidays and coming in back to home to see the children during school term. So the kids don't travel during school term, they only travel on holidays. Or you see a situation where the parents might see the educational opportunities, for example, of a parent who goes to Europe or Hong Kong or somewhere like that for work, parents do often suck it up and say, look, my kids are going to benefit from that international experience. So again, it's about putting aside your hurt, your feeling of fear and loss and focusing on which way should we go with the child if we do have to move geographically. And if couples are struggling to work out living arrangements amicably, what resources are available to them to help find solutions without having to drag the kids to court? So the whole system's geared for people staying away from lawyers and getting early intervention from child experts. So the, the family relationship centres around Australia are funded by the Attorney General's department to help all couples make decisions about their children at the time of separation. And then there are fantastic private providers, counsellors, psychologists, mental health social workers who are trained and skilled in helping parents navigate the decision-making process at separation. So we have a lot of those links on our website 
and we continue to upload more as we find them. It's a really tough time for people, but it's a a well-trodden road. And the best thing now is that we have great longitudinal research on how best to protect your children from the damage of separation during their childhood. And that's our show for this month. Thank you, Heather, for your sage advice on these children's matters. Thank you to our listeners for joining us again, and most of all for being willing to put their focus on what's best for children. We hope you found this podcast helpful, and as always, we will include a list of helpful resources in the show notes for Episode 5 on our website. Next month, we've got special guest on the show to talk about a very difficult issue. Doug Andrews is a psychiatrist at Baringa Hospital in Coffs Harbour, and he is going to help us to understand the impacts of family violence and how to heal the emotional wounds family violence leave behind. It's a really challenging subject, and we're very happy to have someone of Doug's expertise tackle this subject with us. If you have specific questions you would like to see answered about family violence, please send them to us via Facebook Messenger or by emailing familymatters at bryantmckinnon.com.au. Goodbye for now, and we hope you'll be listening again next month. The information provided on this podcast is general in nature and not a substitute for personal legal advice. We recommend you consult an accredited family law specialist. 